we will continue with Jesus as he is walking on the earth and he's with his disciples. As you're turning there, I'm just going to pray. Father, thank you so much for the entry that we have into the Holy of Holies. And Lord, I pray more than that, that we would allow you to enter into the Holy of Holies in our heart, Lord, that we would allow you to enter into the deepest parts of who we are. And Lord, uh, as we study your word, obviously there's, um, there's the opportunity for your spirit to speak to us. And Lord, we don't just come and, and sit down and read your word. If we, if we just do that, then, then we may get something out of it. But unless we're allowing you to speak to us and expecting you to speak to us, then it's really um, it's pointless. So Lord, tonight as we gather and we see, as we open your word, I just pray that you would teach us. Lord, that your spirit would speak to us and, and Lord, to reveal to us the places where we lack as we all have some area where you're trying to, to teach us and to grow us. And Lord, as you grow us, Lord, help us to be hearers and not, uh, or excuse me, doers and not hearers only. But at the same time, Lord, help us not to apply these truths or try to apply these truths to somebody else. But Lord, help us to, to search out our hearts, to ask you to really inspect and and define the log in our eye before we try to deal with the speck in someone else's. But Father, thank you for your son and the way that he truly did portray your love and represent you to the people in a way that we can know more about our Heavenly Father and see his true heart for his lost sheep. So I just pray that you would uh, speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name. So if you turn to chapter 6, we will be in the 30th verse. So, what I want you to know is that last week we took a look at the events surrounding the imprisonment and ultimately the death of John the Baptist. And the events of John, his, his beheading and his death, really were kind of a parenthetical statement, event that took place while Jesus' twelve apostles had been sent out for the first time to preach. Remember, he had sent them out a couple weeks ago, we looked at that, and, and Jesus sent out the twelve and he gave them instructions on how they should minister what they should say, where they should go, where they should stay, and where they shouldn't. And he told them to preach the gospel of the kingdom, the the gospel that they had first received. And he said, hey, if they they don't listen to you, it's okay. Shake the dust off your feet and move on to someone that will and stay with them. So as we dive in this week, the disciples have returned. They're excited. They're bubbling over with what they were able to do. And they, they come in and they want to tell Jesus, hey, guess what happened? Of course, Jesus isn't really surprised because he had sent them out not just to try, but he had sent them out to be successful in what he called them to do. He gave them the faith to go, and he gave them the ability to be effective. He gave them the power. They were just going out taking the power that he had given them. So really, they hadn't done anything other than be obedient, which I think is amazing because God's not asking us to do amazing things, he's asking us to be obedient to his will, to be submissive submissive to him. And when we do that, what we'll find is that we'll be way more effective and way more useful to others and to our families and to ourselves even than we would if we would just try to do our own thing. And so as we start in verse 30, it says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and they told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while, for there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Now, many times we find that in our lives. 
in our lives. We, we have so much going on, and in this day of age, and age, we have so much going on that we will basically forsake food to make sure that we can keep up with our schedule. Now, at the other side of the thing is we have kind of made more convenience food so that we can run our busy lifestyles and still be able to eat on the run, right? Uh, my wife and I just left Nashville this morning, and we were there for a family reunion. But in order to be back here by 5 o'clock, or really we needed to be here a little early, uh, we, we, we got on the highway and we rolled. And we stopped. And the cool thing about today's day and age is if we needed to be at church this evening, we could stop, get some food, and keep driving and eat while we go. We didn't have to cook anything. But the bad side of that is oftentimes we fill our schedule so tight because we can. But the problem in that is oftentimes Jesus spent time in the quiet in the morning when he didn't have things planned, anything other than to pray. And so he takes his disciples here who have been working for him, doing the mission that he sent them out to do, and he says, come aside for a while and rest. Now, I don't know about you guys, but my boss, when I've been working on a project day in and day out for five days straight, doesn't say to me on Monday, hey, why don't you come aside? We're going to take a day of rest. Uh, We're just going to have some fun. going to get you some sleep, maybe an extra meal. No, they don't do that, right? They want as much out of us as they can get for as little pay, which makes sense. If we owned a business, we would do things the same way. But the cool thing is, is that God, knowing that, knowing that we would have the tendency to work every day possible to get all of our our goals met and all of our chores done, he said, okay, I'm going to show you by example in the days of creation, day one through six, he created everything, including you and I. And on day seven, it says that he rested. Now, do you think that God rested because he was, like, worn out? No, absolutely not. God doesn't wear out. He he neither sleeps nor slumbers. And so because of that, we know that he doesn't need rest. But in order to be an example, he rested on day seven to show that pattern. It's just like the, the, um, the intervals that we change the oil on our car. And people always argue, well, is it 3,000, is it 5,000? Well, I, I just read the owner's manual, and I assume that the person that made the car would know how many miles you need to go before you change the oil. Just like I look at my manual here, and I say, Lord, how many days can I go before I need a day of rest? He says, six, and then rest. Okay, that's easy. I don't have to argue with that. And so there are many that argue with that. But anyway, Jesus here withdraws with his disciples for a much-needed rest. He sees that they've been putting out and putting out and putting out, and maybe they don't even realize it. And probably at this point, they don't. This is their first missionary journey. They just don't realize that. And so Jesus tells them, okay, you've been going out, putting out. You need to go and receive. You need to take a a day of rest and be with me. And so he takes them aside to a deserted place. So verse 32, they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and they ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. So they, though they withdrew to find a place of rest and Jesus took them there, uh, Jesus, when he is lifted up, he draws all men to himself. And wherever Jesus goes while he's here, people will be there. People saw him. They knew him. It's interesting to me, the multitudes, though they weren't of the 12, they knew him 
to the point that they knew where he was going and they beat him there. I don't know about you guys, but I don't spend enough time knowing where Jesus is going to be and beating him there. They were so interested in knowing where Jesus was going to be that they zoomed ahead and they said, I'm going to be there first. I want to be there when he gets there so I can see him. I want time with him. So we need to spend more time doing that. More time than we do rush into the next thing, a baseball game. Think about that. We want to go to a baseball game. We get there early to beat traffic and to make sure we get a parking spot. Why would we not do that to be with the one that saved our souls? So though they withdrew to find a place to rest, the crowd recognized Jesus and they surround him. Remember what Jesus says about his disciples. He says, they know me and they know my voice. And I thought that interesting because he says there, they were like sheep not having a shepherd. They were looking for a shepherd. That's bad times. When sheep know that they're in a bad way and they're actually looking for a shepherd, that means something. That means that they're ready to be shepherded. They're looking for someone to lead them. Because of this, Jesus is moved with compassion and he heals many while instructing them concerning the kingdom of God. How do you know when a sheep needs fed? When he starts making some noise, when he's hungry, when he shows up. So notice here, though, that Jesus came out and he saw his eyes beheld. You can't see unless you're there. You can't see needs unless you're among people that have needs, which is tough because these disciples are exhausted. They, w- they had to be, otherwise Jesus wouldn't have taken them to rest. But there were still needs. And so they're being stretched a little bit more than they were probably used to. But because he saw the needs, he not only saw the crowd, but he also saw the individuals that made up the crowd. You and I, when we see a group of people, we don't see individuals oftentimes, we just see a a mass. And so we try to meet the mass's needs, but Jesus saw individual needs. So he was moved with compassion for them. says that he healed some. Compassion, I looked up the definition, and uh, it means to have the bowels yearn. (laughs) which is kind of a weird way that we wouldn't normally say it, but in that way of thinking, the bowels are the center of the human being. It's the very center part, if you think about a big ship. It's the center of the ship, and and it's moved by the person sitting on top of the ship steering the rudder. Well, if the the center of the ship is, is turned that way, the whole boat is going to go that way. So compassion means that it was moved. Um... It means to, to feel sympathy, to feel pity, to have or to be moved with compassion. And I kind of took all of that jumbled mess and I made one sentence out of it. I said, a sympathy, a sympathy that causes you to move. He felt their need and he moved forward. He didn't just see like we oftentimes do. And, you know, there's these com- commercials on TV and they always show these starving children and, and because we're so inundated with these images and these stories, oftentimes we get so used to it that we kind of become hard to them. But Jesus was very sensitive, and yet at the same time, it seems as, as we read the New Testament, that He didn't heal every person that was sitting there. There was one man that sat at the gate. Um, I think it was the gate called Beautiful. It's in the beginning of the book of Acts. And I think it's Peter and, and James... I should have read that. But it's Peter, for sure, that's walking by, and he's walking into the temple to go and worship. And as he's going, he sees this man, and the man looks up, and he says, alms for the poor. You know, he's looking for, some, he's looking for a handout, and he's blind, 
They can't walk. Oh, one of those. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have even used that. But what he says is he says, <laughs> he's asking for alms. And, and Peter looks down at him. He says, silver and gold I have not. But what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ I tell you, walk. And he pulls him up and he walks. So that man, it says of him, he had been sitting there his entire life, which means that Jesus of Nazareth had walked past him in order to go into the temple. He didn't heal every person he went by. He had compassion, but that didn't mean that he was always moved with compassion. And I think that's important because we live, whether we realize it or not, in an area that there are many needs. It doesn't mean that we can fulfill all those needs. It does mean, however, that we can be moved at least to pray. And then when we pray, then we can do something if God says go. But notice more importantly what moved him. He saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. As a result of that, he was moved to teach them many things as the good shepherd. I thought this interesting because the next part of the passage, he's going he's gonna to notice that they're hungry. Actually, his disciples tell him, hey, they're hungry. Send them away. But what Jesus does is he meets their need. But as I was driving today, I got to thinking about this. He doesn't feed them first. He feeds them first. He doesn't, feed them he doesn't feed them physical food first. He feeds them the words of life. He teaches them many things about the kingdom of God. And I think this is interesting on Father's Day because oftentimes what we want to do, and I'm not a dad yet, but I'm thinking about all these things as, as, as Lucy's going to be born in a couple of months, and I go, am I going to be more apt to meet my phys the physical needs of my daughter or am I going to feed her spiritually first? And I'm going to tell you, at this point, I would probably feed her physically first. But I was convicted about that today because oftentimes we think the most important thing is the physical, but the spiritual is what has to happen first. We know this because Jesus here, He teaches them the things of the kingdom. They had rushed after Him. They were probably already hungry at this point, and yet He, he meets the spiritual need first. But He doesn't leave them hanging later either. He also meets their physical need. So if you're like me, you're not a farmer. You're not a sheep herdsman. I don't know how many people in here have sheep. I know of one and his family. But, but I don't know many people that have spent a whole lot of time around sheep. But what I do know, I read in a book called uh, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And I learned a couple of things. So before we go into our own understanding of what it looks like to have sheep that don't have a shepherd... Let's look at what a shepherd does for his sheep, a good shepherd. So if you turn with me to Psalm 23, I'm going to, I'm going to spend a little bit of time there. Psalm 23 is probably one of the most known psalms because it's, it's printed just about everywhere. I think I was just somewhere a couple weeks ago and, and, and a bookstore was called, you know, uh, it, uh, I can't remember what it said on there, but it was one of the verses from Psalm 23. But Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So because the Lord is his shepherd, he's not in want. He has all that he needs. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. So his shepherd takes him to green pastures so he can eat. He takes him beside still water so that he has plenty of moving water, not stagnant, but good water to drink. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You can tell a shepherd from his sheep. If you look at his sheep and they aren't taken well care of, you know that they don't have a good shepherd. 
But if you have sheep that are healthy and well-nourished and they're not sickly, you know they have a good shepherd. They point to the sheep, or excuse me, shepherd. It says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The presence of the shepherd, no matter where the sheep is, the presence of the shepherd makes the, she- the sheep feel comforted. He's not afraid. He's not skittish. If you've ever seen sheep, when they get scared, even in the slight bit, they start running randomly in different directions. They don't know what to do. They get shaky. And so to keep them calm is a very important thing. If you have a sheep running from one side of the field to the other, he's going to get scrawny because he's going to run around and he won't eat. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's interesting because we think of a rod and a staff. And we, you know, I've heard people pray that before. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know what the rod was used for? Correction. Get a whooping. You know, when the sheep runs off and tries to, to leave the flock. You know, a shepherd, and I didn't know this until I read this book and I had heard people talk about it before. A shepherd loves the sheep enough that when it runs off, yeah, he leaves the 91 to go to the one to go and restore it back to the fold. But you know what he does oftentimes if he's a repeat offender? He breaks his leg, then he sets it in place, and he puts the sheep over him. And he breaks that leg so the sheep can't walk, so he has to rely upon the shepherd. And then he carries the sheep around until that leg heals. And then the sheep knows that he's loved because he's been chastened and then been restored to a place of being able to walk on his own. But that sheep is going to be much less likely to run off again. And so he restores that sheep. But that's the kind of comfort that God gives us. He chastens us. Hebrews actually says that God loves us enough. says that God chastens every son whom he receives. That's a comforting thing to the sheep. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And he's just talking about you. You go out into a field and you make sure that all the food that I'm getting ready to eat doesn't have anything that's going to harm, it, harm me in it while my enemies are watching you. He goes ahead of the sheep and he, he prepares the way. Another thing he does is he it says that you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs overflowing. Well, anointing the head of a sheep just means that he pours oil over the head and it's something that deters flies and bugs that would get in the eyes of the sheep and ultimately can blind them. So anointing the head, we also think forward to the anointing of the king of Israel when David had the oil poured over his head. But who anointed the king in that day was not some man, but it was a prophet who was led by God to go and find David, who was the least likely candidate in the, in the eyes of man. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, the idea of a shepherd is not to take a sheep and to just run him from place to place, but it's ultimately to bring him through all of the difficulties that the sheep would experience because sheep can't defend themselves. They have to have a shepherd. They have to be dependent upon this shepherd that will take them everywhere that they go, no matter if there's lions or bears or tigers, oh my. He's going to take them through the valley of the shadow of death because when they go through that valley, they're heading to the high places during the summertime where there's high High, uh, high pastures, but then they have to bring them back down to the valley when it's the, the winter time and it's going to get cold up on the top. And so they're always traveling. And this is the picture of who we are. Because without Jesus, we are a sheep without a shepherd. We're going in all kinds of directions, but we don't know where there's good food. 
And so the Lord is preparing our table and then He's going ahead of us. And then He brings us alongside Him and He feeds us and He gives us water and He presents before us this this word of life and He says, eat of this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So, but what we know about sheep that have no shepherd is that they're needy. They need something to eat because nobody's been feeding them. They're, They're scrawny. Um... Sheep without a shepherd are hungry. They're thirsty. Sheep without a shepherd are hurt. They might have gotten into a field full of briars. Sheep without a shepherd, they tend to wander. They don't have any direction. They don't know who they're supposed to stay with. And so they find out whoever's closest. Sheep without a shepherd are vulnerable because they have no shepherd to protect them with his rod. And since they were this way, the good shepherd took notice. And that's what I wanted to note. And then he did something about it. He started feeding them. It says, so he began to teach them many things. So verse 35, when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and he said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. So the disciples, even though they've been on a mission and they've been reaching out to people, They don't know the heart of their shepherd because their shepherd has just noticed all this. Of course, he's not speaking out loud about it, but he looks over the crowd and and one of the writers obviously noticed that he was moved with compassion. You know, it doesn't say that he showed any emotion, but I wonder if he did. But what I noticed also is he says, um, you know, the disciples' first reaction was to see the fact that the, the, the... the crowd was going to be a hindrance to them. They weren't going to get their vacation. They weren't going to get their rest. When these people at the same time had all these needs, how can you rest, right? doesn't mean that God doesn't call us to rest, but it also means that sometimes we need to take care of people before we get rest. And God is faithful to provide that rest. Sometimes you'll go through a season where it seems like things keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. It's like, I just need a breather for a second, Lord. And he's like, wait, I'll give you one. Don't worry. I'm the good shepherd, remember? I see your need. So they're making the assumption that he doesn't see it. Now, this was logical at the same time. If you think about it, they had nothing to eat. They were in a deserted place. There was nothing there. That's why they went there. But Jesus answered them with an instruction. He said, you give them something to eat. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think that Jesus thought he was asking them to do an impossible thing? Jesus doesn't ask us to do impossible things. He asks us to do something that to us seems impossible, but with Him as the one that's providing the opportunity. The disciples' first response to the crowd was to see them as a bother, but they saw them as a chore. They were supposed to be on vacation. But taking care of sheep is always inconvenient. Shepherds, when they want something to eat, guess what? So do the sheep. They need to be eating on the way while they're going and making sure that there's a field prepared to eat. When shepherd want to sleep, or when sheep want to sleep, guess what the shepherd wants to do? He wants to sleep too. It's dark out. But what he does is he stays awake and he watches them over the night to make sure no, no bad animals come in and try to, to steal one away. No wolves come in. No predators. Here's the problem though. Oftentimes, rather than watching and keeping watch overnight, we like, unlike the, the good shepherd, we're, we're worn out. We're tired. And so we're not sober. We're, we want to sleep too. But what's cool here is that the Lord is our shepherd and He's always watching. He's always keeping watch. 
Remember also, they had just gotten back from their journey to preach the gospel and to heal the sick and cast out demons. That's what we talked about last week. There was, this journey was a great victory for them. They were able to see God do mighty things through them. They came back just bubbling with stories they wanted to tell, about, tell Jesus about what they had done. How soon they had forgotten that He was the one that gave them the power to do that. He said to them, go out, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. And they did, and they came back. And He said, okay, now I'm going to ask you to do something while I'm here. Feed these sheep. Feed these people. And they were like, I don't know if I can do that. You know, what was the difference between this instance and what they had just done, what they had just got back from doing? Verse 37, But he answered and he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. So Jesus instructs them in verse 37. He says, you give them something to eat. And instead of obeying him, remember a couple weeks ago, their victory was because they were obedient. And this week, when he gives them an instruction, they start reasoning in their own minds about how it's impossible. They don't obey. Whether you obey because you think something's impossible or not, excuse me, when you disobey because you think something's impossible, it's still disobedience. So he said, um, let's see, they question Jesus. They say, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? You see, we know from the other gospel, I believe that it's uh, Philip. He was a numbers guy. He figured up and he kind of looked over the crowd and he saw the amount of people. And then he figured up how much it would cost to feed each person. To me, that's amazing because that's pretty quick math. We find out at the end of the chapter it was 5,000 people. And according to Matthew's account, it was actually 5,000 men. So it shows that if you just average it out, it's probably three times that. Because if you think about, you know, most of the men would have a wife and most of them would have at least one child. So at the bare minimum, it's 15,000 people that they needed to feed. So he figures out that it would be 200 denarii. And you say, well, that's great. But what, is, what in the world does that mean? What's denarii? Is, is it like a dollar in their language? No. Denarii, one, is one day's wage. 200 denarii would be, guess what? 200 days wages. So that's almost a year of one man's salary to feed that entire crowd. Now these guys were following Jesus not because they had jobs, but because they left all. They left all to fo- follow Jesus. Even probably one of the most prominent of them Um, He was a tax collector, right? Levi. But he said, you know what? I'm going to pay back all my debts. And I'm not going to be a tax collector anymore. I'm going to follow Jesus. So they didn't have an income, more than likely. So to be able to pay to feed these 15,000 people is is a, a practical impossibility to them. But what I want to think about, and it's what God always takes me back to in the the hardest decisions that I have to make, when God calls me to do something difficult or something that seems impossible to me, God always reminds me of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. That's part of being God's sheep. Stop trying to figure it out on your own. Trust on His wisdom. Be obedient when He calls you to do something. 
that's acknowledging Him in all your ways. And then He will direct your paths. He'll send you in the right direction. So once we lay aside our natural way of thinking, even if it is a numbers guy or whether it's a, a different way, what we know is if we, we lay aside our natural ways of thinking, then we have opportunity for God to do the thinking for us. He's not calling us to come up with a master plan. He's calling us to follow and be obedient. So Jesus has room to teach us His way at that point. And Jesus had said to them, you give them something to eat, and they assumed that Jesus was unaware of the practical impossibility. In Matthew chapter 14, we find out, and I already said that, that there was like 15,000 people total. And Jesus knew that they had little to nothing to give. But the other thing to consider is that Jesus never asks us to do anything that's impossible. He's not capable of doing through us. He's wanting to empower us to do that which He's asking us to do. If He calls us to do something that in our mind seems impossible, He's going to give us the faith to go through it. And He does that here. He wants us to see the need, which they had already done. They're not completely at fault here. They did notice that the people were hungry. They were sensitive to the needs of the people. Um, and then draw close to Him. His desire wasn't for them to be overwhelmed. It was to say, Jesus, we have this need. Can you please help us fulfill it? But when they didn't do that, he, he goes ahead and he asks him a question. He says, go ahead and, and see what has already been provided. See what's available to you. And what they did is, I, I guess they went through the crowd and they found out if anybody had any food. You know, that's one of the best ways to do it. If you've got a group of people, everybody needs some food, let's go find out who already has some. And so, in a very practical way, they go and find out what the crowd had to offer. Now, because they're a needy crowd, they didn't have much to offer, but what you'll find is that Jesus accepted what little they had to offer. It's like when we worship God, we oftentimes think that we're doing something that impresses Him, when what we're really doing is we're saying back to Him what He's told us about Himself. And as we say back to Him what He's told us about Himself, we're confessing that He is Lord. Confession just means to say something again. And when we confess to Him that we know who He is, not only does it instill in us a little bit more faith to get through the next day and remind us of who He is and who we are in light of Him, but it also strengthens us because we find out that our strength isn't important. His is. And so He says to them, go and find out what's in the crowd. Find out what kind of food is there. And they find it. And they don't go, well, that guy's only got five loaves and that guy's only got two fish. They go, Okay, they finally decided, hey, I'm going to be obedient in this thing. And so he says, go to them, find out what you got, and they go and they find five loaves and two fish. I wonder if they were trying to prove a point to him. They found five loaves and two fish and they said, okay, here it is. Here's the food that you said we would find. You still think we can feed them? And of course, he met them right where they were at and he said, okay, thank you. And he took it. You wonder if their jaws just kind of dropped and hit the floor. Like, seriously? <laughs> He's still going to try? You know? But how quickly we forget what he had already done in front of them. Because before this, I don't know if you remember this, this is one of the ones that sticks out the most in my mind. He says, come with me, get in the boat, and let's cross over to the other side. And they go. And what happens? A big storm comes up. He's sleeping in the bow, and they're freaking out. And they finally... They're, they're so upset that they come to him. They say, Lord, don't you know that we're perishing? And he wakes up, says nothing to them. And he says, peace be still. And the wind and the waves cease. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never seen anything to that multitude. 
Even in, you know, think about when your kids are swimming in the bathtub and they're splashing all over the place. Peace be still, cease. Those words, first of all, they don't normally listen the first time. But second of all, when they do stop, there's still lots of splashing going on until it kind of calms down. But it says, immediately the waves ceased. So to me, it's more than just like the sloshing and the wind ceased. The water was still. So they were... They witnessed that, and yet at this moment, he says, give me what little you have, and they're still like, are you sure this is going to be possible? So anyway, he asked them in verse 38, how many loaves do you have? Go and see, and they find them. I already said that. So I think this is interesting because oftentimes we think that we have a lot to offer God. But what I wrote down here was in uh, Romans chapter 12, actually in 11. In Romans 12, you'll often hear this. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. But I think it's interesting that in Romans chapter 11, you really have the key for why. In chapter 12, it says, I beseech you therefore, but we have to find out why that phrase is therefore. So if you go back to chapter 11, the last three, four verses 33 through 36, it says, and Paul reasons with them here, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways are past finding out. For who has known the mind of God, or who has become his counselor? See, the disciples here are counseling him. Lord, we don't have enough money to feed these guys. And the Lord's saying, just get me what's available. Or do, excuse me, or who has first given to him, to, to God, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. So then he says, as a result of that, because no one counsels God, because no one's ever given anything to God that he hasn't first given them, he says, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service. So the interesting part to me here is God's not saying, give me something magnificent. He's saying to you, give, you, give me yourself. Give me that which I've already purchased with my own blood. He's not asking us to give him something miraculous. He's saying, give me what you have. And when we give him what we have, he takes of it. We're going to see here, he multiplies it. He breaks it, and he, and he feeds us. Verse 39, Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed, and broke the loaves. And he gave them to his disciples to set before them, and the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled and they took up twelve baskets full of fragments of the fish. And now those who had eaten the loaves were about five thousand men. So notice that the disciples didn't have to come up with or make the bread. Jesus broke it, gave thanks, and then he handed it out to the disciples. And what their job was, was to divide the group into, into sections of people and to go out amongst them and to feed them. They didn't have to come up with the bread, they had to disperse the bread. 
That's what makes me think that's what we're called to do. Oftentimes we think that we have to come up with something amazing to give people to to show them the love of the Lord. But what the Lord's saying is, I've already come up with that. I've given you my son. I've given you the bread of life. I've lifted him up to heaven and I've broken him. I've broken his body for the forgiveness of sins to be the bread of life that would not only sustain you, but also to feed the lost sheep. And as you feed them, they'll be sustained and they'll know their shepherd. They'll know his voice and they will come to him. And so he says there that they were all ate and they all were filled. Notice also that there were 12 baskets that they used to pass out bread. Jesus was the bread. They went to Jesus. They went out to the crowd. And when they ran out of bread in their basket, they went back to Jesus and they got filled up again. That's what we're called to do. That's that rest he was trying to give them at the beginning of this this section we're studying tonight. Anytime that we go out and pass out, we need to come back to Jesus and get that rest. And that's what they did, whether they realized that's what they were doing or not. The disciples' job here is the same job that we're to do. Go to Jesus, receive from Him, and to take to those that are hungry, those that are thirsting, and to feed them. So I think it's interesting tonight that as we look at this passage... That the, the, that the disciples, their first response is not the response of their, their heavenly Father. It's not the response of the Savior. It's not the response of the Good Shepherd. And I think oftentimes we go, yeah, I know Jesus now, and so I get Him. I know what He would be doing. But I think the interesting thing is that these guys had been with Him at this point almost two years, and they still didn't know what He was about. They didn't know what His priorities were. And so I think it's interesting that even though they had spent all that time, and we often think, I, I've went to church every year for my whole life, and now I know Jesus, and I know what He would do in this situation. But I find it interesting that spending time with Him is how these guys found out. Spending time with Him, and then screwing up, and not knowing the will of God, and then Him correcting them, Him using that rod, that chastening rod, and correcting them was what was the avenue to them being blessed in service because what they wanted to do was be useful by, by God. But it's interesting that he was the one that did the preaching. And right after that, he told them to feed him. And then he gave them the bread to hand out. All they were do, supposed to do was wait tables. We oftentimes think about waiting tables and we go, well, that's what people do when they're not skilled. But the Lord, what he wants us to do is he wants us to be humble. I was reading a book today that said, uh, number one step to revival is obedience. The number two step is humility. And uh, there's two more steps, but I can't remember them right now because it's kind of still sinking into my mind. But it's interesting to me that when God used these guys in both situations, the number one step was is they in faith believed Him and obeyed. And so uh, may God give us the obedience to be able to not only hear His Word, but to obey it. And in doing that, not only have life ourselves, but be an avenue for blessing to many others because I think that's something that the world is missing I spent some time this weekend with a couple of guys that are awesome guys but they don't have rest they don't have peace they can't get filled back up because they're doing it in their own strength and so my prayer is that lots of really really good guys would get humbled find obedience in the Lord and as they do that that they would come to know the Savior who would be able to sustain them to do good works that don't only last in this lifetime, but last eternally. That would take people to heaven. That would take people to the throne of God. So, Father, thank you so much for allowing us to, uh, to partake of the bread of life. 
Thank you for lifting up your son and showing us that we need him. Thank you for humbling us in a way that brings us to the foot of the cross, showing us that not only do we not measure up, but we have nothing to offer. But Father, thank you that when we have nothing to offer, when we rush to where you're going to be, that you show up with your disciples ready to feed us. Lord, may we be those that would receive from you, rush to where you're going to be, be filled up so much that we're, that we're overflowing and we can feed those who don't know you so that they can come to know you. Father, thank you for the avenue that we have to worship you. Thank you for giving us a building with air conditioning, Lord. Thank you for giving us a place to meet and to gather. I pray that we would be those that would be so filled with your word that when you send us to folks and you give us the green light to speak to them, that they would hear the words of life and they would get to know the good shepherd who doesn't leave his sheep hungry, who doesn't leave his sheep uh, well uh, unnourished, but he's always feeding, he's always giving out, he's always pursuing us. Lord, may we be those that pursue you so that, uh, that we can find our rest in you. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.